0: Jesus had 12 disciples, so it works. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, We are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are doing discussions in the Gospel of Matthew. We look at the passages each week, and uh, I give some comments, and then we open it up to your questions and for discussions. Now, I'm trying to repeat your questions. ...as we do this so that it gets on the recording, but I'm not really good at that, so you may have to remind me uh, to do that. Um, Today we're in Matthew chapter 12, and I've entitled this, The Signs of the Sabbath and Jonah. The context for this chapter is the chapter that we uh, read before, chapter 11... And in that, there is the discussion of John and John being the greatest uh, born uh, of women. And then the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. And in the context of that, uh, this notion that this generation, uh, John came not eating or drinking and you said he's a nut. And the son of man comes eating and drinking and you call him a winebibber. In other words... Uh, Regardless of how we bring the message, this generation was not accepting the message. And so that continues in there. He says that if the uh, miracles that he had done, the signs that he had done, had been done in Sodom and in Sidon, that they would have repented. The Queen of Sheba uh, also. Uh, this notion of to whom much is given, much is required, the generation that saw Jesus saw a manifestation of God greater than had been seen, and yet there was this incredible unbelief. Jesus said at the judgment, these other groups that had prophets that they repented at uh, would rise up in judgment of them. So, um, we pick up in chapter 12 in verse uh, 1 through 13. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests only." Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and there was a man there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. I'm going to uh, talk about this section first. Um, This passage uh, is not a removal of the Sabbath, as a lot of Christians have done, where Jesus is saying, see, the Sabbath is not important. Uh, It is actually uh, trying to address what the purpose of the Sabbath is. The Pharisees here are accusing Jesus' disciples of violating the Torah. Violating the Sabbath. Now at the time that this is going on. You recall the Torah requires that the corners of the field be left open. For the poor and for others. So that they may uh, harvest and eat. And so uh, there is an area where Jesus is going through the grain fields. The disciples are hungry, so they break off some of the grain and they they eat it. And the Pharisees say, oh, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Torah where God gave them the manna and he gave them a double portion on Friday so that they would not have to prepare it on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees were beginning to include in their oral tradition something that will, from this point forward, be settled in their tradition, that you cannot harvest, and that grabbing a a fruit off a tree or grain from a stalk would be considered harvesting, and then clearing it would be considered preparing, and then eating. You're not allowed to do that because that's work on the Sabbath. Now I don't want to get into whether or not that's an appropriate uh, uh, oral tradition for that. Because I believe that it is okay for us to go beyond the minimal requirements of the Torah as a tradition, as a community. Uh, So I'm not going to criticize uh, Judaism for that in this context. But what Jesus is doing is he is trying to explain to them... That they have got the intent of this incorrect. And he's going to explain it to them. And so what he does is he gives them first an example from the prophets. David and his men come and they are hungry. And there is no bread. And the bread that is set aside for the priests, which is holy. Is uh, available and they say that's available. And so he takes it. And you recall, he takes it because his men are not in a state of unholiness for their level. Uh, and they're asked about that. And they eat. In other words, there is something more important going on with the king and his men as they're going in this direction than the priest and the bread that is eaten separately in a holy place. Uh, And so Jesus uses that one and then he goes directly to the issue of the Torah itself where the priests are sacrificing animals and they're preparing uh, meals and stuff that are related to that sacrifice on the Sabbath and yet they're allowed to do that because that's commanded on the Sabbath. So the notion here is tied in the direction of the intent of the Sabbath. Finally, Jesus in the synagogue says to them, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right? You guys pick up an animal if it's fallen into a ditch on the Sabbath. You get the principle, you're not understanding it fully. And so he says, It's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and he heals the man. Now, all of this comes under the quotation that Jesus takes from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, where God says, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. Now, this is not a statement that says, I desire mercy to the exclusion of sacrifice. What he's saying is, I desire mercy over sacrifice. In other words... There is an intent, a spirit of the commandments. That have as their goal the attributes of God. Faithfulness, mercy, uh, love and those kinds of things. And then there's the letter of the law. And that letter of the law conforms to a shadow of, of what that substance is. But the shadow itself is not the substance. So he says, I desire mercy... I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. Now it's very important for us to understand this. So I want to remind you of what David said in Psalm 51. After his sin, David says, You do not desire sacrifice or I would give it. What you want is a repentant heart then you will restore the joy of my salvation and then sacrifices will be given. Notice, they're not done away with. They're done as an expression of the substance that's being done. Otherwise, we have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. And so Jesus says to them, I am Lord of the Sabbath. There is one greater here Than what was in those cases. In other words, you need to use the priorities of God in the context of the obedience of the commandments. I think it's a very important uh, teaching. We tend to have in the religious community people who think that the form or the shadow is the substance, and therefore that's where all their criticism and all their justification is, missing the point of the mercy and the grace and the love and the other things that are important. It reminds me of Jesus' statement when he was condemning the Pharisees and he said, you tithe even your herbs, but you forget the weightier parts of the law, love and justice. These you ought to have done and not left the others undone. He is not getting rid of the shadow, but we have to keep the shadow as the shadow and not as the substance in that context. So, I'm going to stop it at that point. right. so we're going to pick it up at uh, that point in verse 14. Uh, Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them. And he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, this passage is telling us that the leadership, not the people, the leadership who are challenged by Jesus' presence are seeking to destroy him. Ultimately, it will be some from the Pharisees and the chief priests who will really go after Jesus. But the people love him. The people think that he has come from God. The people believe the signs of his miracles are that he is the Messiah. But he is not going to confront that leadership at this point. And so Matthew noticing that refers to this meekness in Jesus, this this avoiding conflict with the Pharisees in the Isaiah passage about the servant of uh, the Lord who will... Notice his focus is that he will be proclaimed among the Gentiles. This is an interesting statement in a text that has been dominated by speaking to Israel. There is more than Israel at stake here. And we are included in that framework. Uh, so that, that's really important. So Matthew emphasizes him as the one whom the Gentiles will hope in. Uh, And this is mentioned by Paul in Romans 15... ...where he says also, as he quotes this... ...that in him the Gentiles will trust. And so we begin to get a... um, ...opening of this message that has been... ...dominantly to Israel. And we're going to see that in part... ...Israel is going to reject it... ...particularly the leadership. And this is going to, in some sense... ...open the door, as Paul says... To us as Gentiles in that context. So I'm going to stop at that point. So the question is. Are there Gentiles included in this, in this context? Um, the area that Jesus is in. Uh, appears to be an area where there would be more Gentiles. Because the Decapolis is near that area. So uh, it's likely that there were Gentiles Uh, What they called God-fearers in some of the synagogues that Jesus is going to. Uh, But Jesus is going to maintain his focus that that his ministry, that he has sent to Israel. Israel is going to, at least the leadership, is going to reject him. Opening the door to the Gentiles, but not closing the door on Israel. Which is Paul's whole point in Romans. And I want to get to that as we get further into the gospel. We'll begin to see this pattern emerging. This is where I first begin to notice it. And then we'll begin to see it more and more. Ultimately with the end of Matthew's gospel. Where the disciples are told. Go now into all the nations. And make disciples. Which they won't fully understand as including the Gentiles. Until Paul comes along. And, and Peter does his uh, visit to Cornelius' house. They will then begin to realize that this message is going internationally, not just, not just Israel. And that's why Paul will say it is a message to the Jew first and also to the Greek in that, in that sense. So we're, we're moving on. So we're going to pick it up at verse 22 now. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed, saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But the Pharisees heard this, and they said, Oh, this guy is casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges, your sons. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Now he continues here and says, He that is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So, make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which which comes from the heart. A good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and an evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it on the day of judgment. For for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now this is a fascinating text, because this is where Jesus is casting out demons of a a uh, man who cannot speak and who is blind, Okay, the ultimate sign the Jews wanted for a Messiah was a demon to be cast out of a man who was blind and deaf and mute. Because how then, if he can't hear, and if he can't see, and he has no access, how can the spirit be cast out of him? Right? So we have most of that in this context. And when it happens, and the people go, isn't this what Isaiah said? Isn't this the sign of the Messiah? Isn't he the son of David? And that's when the the Pharisees go, oh no, he's casting them out by an evil spirit. And Jesus' response to them is, if I'm casting out by an evil spirit, then Satan, who is, has every reason for these spirits to be in these people, is divided against himself. And that house cannot stand. But if I abound him, and I have control over him, and authority over him, then I can clean the house as I want. And if I'm doing this by an evil spirit, who are your sons casting demons out? Because they were, they were doing similar things. And they claimed it was the spirit of God. So Jesus says, you can make a case and an argument and a sin against me and that can be forgiven. Remember, at this time, even Jesus' own family don't fully believe in him. But if you reject the spirit of God that is being manifest, as God's word says it's going to be manifest, you will have no forgiveness here or in the life to come. Pretty, pretty strong condemnation. And ties into, you've seen more than others have seen. And therefore, you have a higher uh, responsibility in that context. Then he says, watch your words. Get your act together and make your words and your behavior good. Or make your words and your behavior evil. You're giving mixed signals. And I'm telling you, you're going to give an account for every idle word. That to me is important because most of you uh, do things where you have to think about your words and you have to present yourself. Those are not the words that reveal who we are. It's the idle words that reveal who we are. It's when we haven't scripted something and something happens and we respond. And that shows what's really in us. That's what he's talking about. Now, I'm not happy with the idea that every idle word is part of the judgment. But it do, this verse does make me think about being more careful. As James says, our tongues are set on fire of hell. And we need to be really careful what we say. It's very easy in an age of social media to hear or get a little bit of information. Rush to some quick judgment and then pontificate about the righteousness or evil of that. And what it usually is doing is revealing our own heart in that context. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I don't, I don't allow myself to get drug into Facebook and Twitter conversations. Uh, I <clears throat> in the early days, I talked a lot more on those and the nonsense that came back and the stuff that was misinterpreted from what I said. Maybe now when I say something, I'm very careful about it. I think about it. I let it sit for a while and then I do it. Which means I'm not going to be responding to anything
1: that's immediate. Because I'm just worried about those idle words. So, we'll take a... So, this, you're taking a little bit Christologically with the two
0: natures of Christ. You can, you, you can sin against the Son of Man, the human Jesus, but the divine Jesus you can't. I'm not sure they're thinking in those kind of categories. I think what Jesus is talking about is, I have come from the Father and I am manifesting signs... In the in what I'm doing, it's not me doing the work; it's the Father in me doing the work. It is the Spirit of God doing the work. <clears throat> you can misunderstand me in this, uh, and and be corrected in that process. But if you reject the signs that are being manifest, the Spirit that is being manifest, you you there's really no hope. So I really think this more about the fact that these Pharisees knew for certain that he was manifesting signs that demonstrated he had come from God. Remember Nicodemus, very early in Jesus' ministry. We know that you have come from God. For no man can do the things you do, unless God be with him. Right? So the Pharisees knew. They were not confused. They were giving false Uh, testimony regarding Jesus. And that can be forgiven. You can turn from that. You give false testimony about the Spirit of God, and now the Spirit of God is the whole of the manifestation of God. So
1: I think that's what that's about. Jesus had
0: 12 disciples, so... It
1: works.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, We are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are doing discussions in the Gospel of Matthew. We look at the passages each week, and uh, I give some comments, and then we open it up to your questions and for discussions. Now, I'm trying to repeat your questions as we do this so that it gets on the recording. But I'm not really good at that, so you may have to remind me uh, to do that. Um, Today we're in Matthew chapter 12, and I've entitled this, The Signs of the Sabbath and Jonah. The context for this chapter is the chapter that we uh, read before, chapter 11. And in that, there is the discussion of John, and John being the greatest Born uh, of women, and then the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. And in the context of that, uh, this notion that this generation, uh, John came not eating or drinking, and you said he's the nut, and the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you call him a wine bibber. In other words, regardless of how we bring the message, this generation was not accepting the message. And so that continues in there. He says that if the uh, miracles that he had done, the signs that he had done, had been done in Sodom and in Sidon, that they would have repented. The Queen of Sheba uh, also, Uh, this notion of to whom much is given, much is required, the generation that saw Jesus saw a manifestation of God greater than had been seen, and yet there was this incredible unbelief. Jesus said at the judgment, these other groups that had prophets that they repented at uh, would rise up in judgment of them. So, um, we pick up in chapter 12 in verse uh, 1 through 13. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest only." Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and there was a man there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. I'm going to uh, talk about this section first. Um, This passage uh, is not a removal of the Sabbath, as a lot of Christians have done, where Jesus is saying, see, the Sabbath is not important. Uh, It is actually uh, trying to address what the purpose of the Sabbath is. The Pharisees here are accusing Jesus' disciples of violating the Torah, violating the Sabbath. Now, at the time that this is going on, you recall, the Torah requires that the corners of the field be left open for the poor and for others, so that they may uh, harvest and eat. And so, uh, there is an area where Jesus is going through the grain fields, The disciples are hungry, so they break off some of the grain and they they eat it. And the Pharisees say, oh, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Torah where God gave them the manna and he gave them a double portion on Friday so that they would not have to prepare it on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees were beginning to include in their oral tradition something that will, from this point forward, be settled in their tradition, that you cannot harvest, and that grabbing a a fruit off a tree or grain from a stalk would be considered harvesting, and then clearing it would be considered preparing, and then eating. You're not allowed to do that because that's work on the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to get into whether or not that's an appropriate uh, uh, oral tradition for that because I believe that it is okay for us to go beyond the minimal requirements of the Torah as a tradition, as a community. Uh, So, I'm not going to criticize uh, Judaism for that in this context. But what Jesus is doing is he is trying to explain to them... That they have got the intent of this incorrect. And he's going to explain it to them. And so what he does is he gives them first an example from the prophets. David and his men come and they are hungry. And there is no bread. And the bread that is set aside for the priest which is holy. Is uh, available and they say that's available. And so he takes it. And you recall he takes it because his men are not in a state of unholiness for their level. uh, And they're asked about that and they eat. In other words, there is something more important going on with the king and his men as they're going in this direction than the priest and the bread that is eaten separately in a holy place. Uh, And so Jesus uses that one and then he goes directly to the issue of the Torah itself where the priests are sacrificing animals and they're preparing uh, meals and stuff that are related to that sacrifice on the Sabbath and yet they're allowed to do that because that's commanded on the Sabbath. So the notion here is tied in the direction of the intent of the Sabbath. Finally, Jesus in the synagogue says to them, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right? You guys pick up an animal if it's fallen into a ditch on the Sabbath. You get the principle, you're not understanding it fully. And so he says, "It's, It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and he heals the man. Now, all of this comes under the quotation that Jesus takes from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, where God says, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. Now, this is not a statement that says, I desire mercy to the exclusion of sacrifice. What he's saying is, I desire mercy over sacrifice. In other words... There is an intent, a spirit of the commandments. That have as their goal the attributes of God. Faithfulness, mercy, uh, love and those kinds of things. And then there's the letter of the law. And that letter of the law conforms to a shadow of, of what that substance is. But the shadow itself is not the substance. So he says, I desire mercy... I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. Now, it's very important for us to understand this. So, I want to remind you of what David said in Psalm 51. After his sin, David says, You do not desire sacrifice or I would give it. What you want is a repentant heart. Then you will restore the joy of my salvation. And then sacrifices will be given. Notice they're not done away with. They're done as an expression of the substance that's being done. Otherwise we have a form of godliness. And deny the power thereof. And so Jesus says to them. I am Lord of the Sabbath. There is one greater here. Than what was in those cases. In other words. You need to use the priorities of God. In the context of the obedience of the commandments. I think it's a very important uh, teaching. We tend to have in the religious community. People who think that the form. Or the shadow. Is the substance. And therefore. That's where all their criticism. And all their justification is. Missing the point of the mercy and the grace and the love and the other things that are important. It reminds me of Jesus' statement when he was condemning the Pharisees and he said, you tithe even your herbs, but you forget the weightier parts of the law, love and justice. These you ought to have done and not left the others undone. He is not getting rid of the shadow, but we have to keep the shadow as the shadow and not as the substance in that context. So, I'm going to stop it at that point. All right, so we're going to pick it up at uh, that point in verse 14. Uh, Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them, and he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, this passage is telling us that the leadership, not the people, the leadership who are challenged by Jesus' presence are seeking to destroy him. Ultimately, it will be some from the Pharisees and the chief priests who will really go after Jesus. But the people love him. The people love him think that he has come from God. The people believe the signs of his miracles are that he is the Messiah. But he is not going to confront that leadership at this point. And so Matthew noticing that refers to this meekness in Jesus, this, this avoiding conflict with the Pharisees in the Isaiah passage about the servant of uh, the Lord who will notice his focus is that he will be proclaimed among the Gentiles. This is an interesting statement in a text that has been dominated by speaking to Israel. There is more than Israel at stake here. And we are included in that framework. Uh, So that's really important. So Matthew emphasizes him as the one whom the Gentiles will hope in. Uh, And this is mentioned by Paul in Romans 15, where he says also, as he quotes this, that in him the Gentiles will trust. And so we begin to get an opening of this message that has been dominantly to Israel. And we're going to see that in part, Israel is going to reject it, particularly the leadership. And this is going to, in some sense, Open the door, as Paul says, to us as Gentiles in that context. So, I'm going to stop at that point. So, the question is, are there Gentiles included in this, in this context? Um, the area that Jesus is in uh, appears to be an area where there would be more Gentiles because the Decapolis is near that area. So, uh, it's likely that there were Gentiles, uh, what they called God-fearers, in some of the synagogues that Jesus is going to. Uh, but Jesus is going to maintain his focus that, the, that his ministry, that he has sent to Israel. Israel is going to, at least the leadership, is going to reject him, opening the door to the Gentiles. But not closing the door on Israel. Which is Paul's whole point in Romans. And I want to get to that as we get further into the gospel. We'll begin to see this pattern emerging. This is where I first begin to notice it. And then we'll begin to see it more and more. Ultimately with the end of Matthew's gospel. Where the disciples are told. Go now into all the nations. And make disciples. Which they won't fully understand as including the Gentiles. Until Paul comes along and, and Peter does his uh, visit to Cornelius' house. They will then begin to realize that this message is going internationally, not just, not just Israel. And that's why Paul will say it is a message to the Jew first and also to the Greek in that, in that sense. So we're, we're moving on. So we're going to pick it up at verse 22 now. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed, saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But the Pharisees heard this, and they said, Oh, this guy is casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges, your sons. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Now he continues here and says, He that is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So, make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which which comes from the heart. A good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and an evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it on the day of judgment. For for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now this is a fascinating text, because this is where Jesus is casting out demons of a a uh, man who cannot speak, and who is blind, Okay, the ultimate sign the Jews wanted for a Messiah was a demon to be cast out of a man who was blind and deaf and mute. Because how then, if he can't hear, and if he can't see, and he has no access, how can the spirit be cast out of him? Right? So we have most of that in this context. And when it happens, and the people go, isn't this what Isaiah said? Isn't this the sign of the Messiah? Isn't he the son of David? And that's when the the Pharisees go, oh no, he's casting them out by an evil spirit. And Jesus' response to them is, if I'm casting out by an evil spirit, then Satan, who is, has every reason for these spirits to be in these people, is divided against himself. And that house cannot stand. But if I abound him, and I have control over him, and authority over him, then I can clean the house as I want. And if I'm doing this by an evil spirit, who are your sons casting demons out? Because they were, they were doing similar things. And they claimed it was the spirit of God. So Jesus says, you can make a case and an argument and a sin against me and that can be forgiven. Remember, at this time, even Jesus' own family don't fully believe in him. But if you reject the spirit of God that is being manifest as God's word says it's going to be manifest, you will have no forgiveness here or in the life to come. Pretty, pretty strong condemnation and ties into, you, you've seen more than others have seen, and therefore you have a higher uh, responsibility in that context. Then he says, watch your words. Get your act together, and make your words and your behavior good, or make your words and your behavior evil. You're giving mixed signals. And I'm telling you, you're going to give an account for every idle word. That to me is important. Because most of you uh, do things where you have to think about your words. And you have to present yourself. Those are not the words that reveal who we are. It's the idle words that reveal who we are. It's when we haven't scripted something. And something happens and we respond. And that shows what's really in us. That's what he's talking about. Now, I'm not happy with the idea that every idle word is part of the judgment. But it do, this verse does make me think about being more careful. As James says, our tongues are set on fire of hell. And we need to be really careful what we say. It's very easy in an age of social media to hear get a little bit of information. Rush to some quick judgment and then pontificate about the righteousness or evil of that. And what it usually is doing is revealing our own heart in that context. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I don't, I don't allow myself to get drug into Facebook and Twitter conversations. Um, I <clears throat> in the early days, I talked a lot more on those and the nonsense that came back, and the stuff that was misinterpreted from what I said. Maybe now, when I say something, I'm very careful about it. I think about it. I let it sit for a while, and then I do it. Which means I'm not going to be responding to anything that's immediate, because I'm just worried about those
1: idle words. So, we'll take a... So this you're taking a little bit
0: Christologically with the two natures of Christ. You can you you can sin against the Son of Man, the human Jesus, but the divine Jesus you can't. I'm not sure they're thinking in those kind of categories. I think what Jesus is talking about is I have come from the Father and I am manifesting signs. In the in what I'm doing, it's not me doing the work; it's the Father in me doing the work. It is the Spirit of God doing the work. <clears throat> you can misunderstand me in this, uh, and and be corrected in that process. But if you reject the signs that are being manifest, the Spirit that is being manifest, you you there's really no hope. So I really think this more about the fact that these Pharisees knew for certain that he was manifesting signs that demonstrated he had come from God. Remember Nicodemus, very early in Jesus' ministry. We know that you have come from God. For no man can do the things you do unless God be with him, right? So the Pharisees knew. They were not confused. They were giving false Uh, testimony regarding Jesus. And that can be forgiven. You can turn from that. You give false testimony about the Spirit of God, and now the Spirit of God is the whole of the
1: manifestation of God. So I think that's what that's about. I think they were saying he's not the Messiah. So they're speaking against him.
0: Uh, now they're going and saying... And that spirit is not God's spirit. Which is a greater sin. And so he's, he's addressing it that way. There's a lot of comparisons in these chapters... That are not the way we think comparisons. Right? It's part of what... Uh, you weren't here last week... But we were struggling over... If John the Baptist is greatest among... Those born of women but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, does that mean John will be least in the kingdom? No, he's comparing two different contexts. So, here I think he's comparing the, uh, I am coming, and obviously you are rejecting me, uh, because I have have come, in a sense, to be rejected. That doesn't mean that will never be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the spirit, uh, you you have blasphemed all hope, right? It's like a complete giving up on God. I do think the Trinitarian stuff is in there, but I don't think it's explicit. So I, I, that's why I didn't go with the human and divine nature thing, because I'm not sure they, they would have gotten that. Okay, the, the, there is a major difference in Christian theologies regarding the degree to which... Demons can um, engage believers. Okay, um, so the the scripture is pretty clear that anything that defiles the temple of God, God will destroy, and and we are told, Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Right? It seems to indicate that. That demons cannot—we use the word "enter," but cannot possess in that sense believers. Okay, um, so that would mean they could only do that to unbelievers. Uh, but not everybody around Jesus is a believer, right? So, so that would be part of the process, and they could still be. Uh, Uh, in a village or in a community and that kind of thing. Now, Paul seems to indicate that uh, the spiritual world of Satan can wreak havoc with us because he talks about his own thorn in the flesh and the angel of Satan that is causing him trouble. But if you look at the trouble that Paul talks about, they're all external things. He gets shipwrecked. He gets uh, mobs running against him. He gets stone, right? All of those things. In other words, the circumstances are controlled by the God of this world, which is Satan. But he's not going to enter into uh, a believer. We we really have a, a similar thing with Job. God only allows him to cause havoc in the circumstances of his life. And even at some point, to his body, but but there's not the, the kind of thing that happens with with um, with Saul, right? Where
1: he loses. Probably not not obedient. So where are we? We are in thirty-eight. All right. So the second
0: sign issue, and um, oh, we got time, right? So. Uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, they have been seeing nothing but signs, right? So keep that in mind. We want to see a sign from you. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah was in the was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon because she'd heard about it and behold something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is giving a statement that there's something more significant going on here and this generation is simply not getting it. They do not have eyes to see and ears to hear that Phrase that was in the earlier generation is part of a statement from Isaiah. This people will see with their eyes but will not understand. They will hear with their ears but they will not understand, right? But these Gentiles, notice the Nineveh and Queen Sheba, these Gentiles will hear about the Lord and they will respond and therefore they will rise up against this generation and condemn it. So he says, this is the warning to Israel. Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. But empty, right? When it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, they, they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. This generation that is being given the manifestation is going to reject that. And in the rejection, they are going to, even though they had been brought back in, remember... They go into diaspora. A remnant is brought back. This remnant is given a manifestation. And many of them are not going to receive it. There will be a a remnant that will. We'll see that next week when we look at the parables. When Jesus begins to make a distinction between those of his disciples who get it. Who this is being revealed to. And the rest of Israel who have been blinded and hardened in part. Paul says... For the sake of the Gentiles. right? There is much more going on here. Than simply Jesus came to the Jews. And they rejected him. There is the entire plan of God. Being worked out in this context. So he says. uh, This is what is going to happen. To this generation. Now there is a little tag here. uh, In verse 46. That I want to get. But
1: let me see if there are any questions. on, On this statement. About the demon going out and coming back in. The, the, the rise of the uh, various
0: sects of Judaism. As they entered back into the land. Is to clean all the corruption out. Right? So that they will be clean before God. And Jesus says you're only cleaning the outside Inside, you've got dead men's bones. Inside, you're still unholy. What you've done is, you've cleaned out the outside and you've given the appearance that you have released that demon. But it's coming back and you're going to be worse. Because you are not hearing the good news. You are not accepting the Spirit of God to come and dwell in you. You are rejecting this message uh, and you are fulfilling what Isaiah spoke of you. You will see it with your eyes, but you will not understand. You will not perceive. You will hear it with your ears, and you will not understand. Right? And Jesus says, it's not revealed to the wise and to the high and mighty. It's revealed to babes. Right? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is beginning to, and Matthew is, just screaming Isaiah. Which for them should have been very clear. Because they would have been very familiar with Isaiah. Now not the Pharisees. I mean not the Sadducees. Sadducees were only about the Torah. So when you see him arguing with the priests and, the, and that group. He's got to stay in the Torah stuff. But the Pharisees were big on the prophets. And particularly on Isaiah. And Isaiah is what Matthew is talking about. From John the Baptist. Through Jesus as the suffering servant, and and all of that, uh, Matthew is heavily dependent on on uh, imagery from from uh, Isaiah. Yeah, I always say it's San Bernardino, right? You know, the, that's where the demons hang out. the the uh, The issue is that it, remember the geography of Israel. Uh, they, in a sense, they go out into the wilderness. Uh, they go away from from the watered places, uh, and they seek rest, and they find none, and they say, "I'm going back." Uh, this this craving of of demons we don't know the origins of them, this craving of demons to be embodied is fascinating, right? Uh, even willing to go into swine rather than be just cast out, right? This 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 issue of they're somehow given access to experience in in this context. It's not good for the person that they're they're doing it with, but uh, it's a uh, something in there and that craves this embodiment. I
1: don't I don't fully get that. here, uh, verse forty six. While
0: Jesus is speaking. To the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother. And sister and mother. Now, in the context of Israel, who will say, we are the seed of Abraham. We are the physical living descendants of Abraham. That gives us place. Jesus will say, if you were really of your father Abraham, you would act like Abraham. Right? Right? You're like your father, the devil. You're acting like him. Right? The issue is, our relationships are spiritually connected. And they need to be understood as, we are connected, or we should be connected, to those who do the will of God. Not those who just claim to be relationship. Now, this is really awkward, because obviously, Mary... Is not being rejected by Jesus here. And his brothers are not being rejected. He's making a, a priority again. That the spiritual outweighs the physical. Even in the terms of family relationship. So Jesus will say in many of his teachings. If you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister and your own life. You're not worthy of me. In other words, keep the spiritual priorities, the priorities. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. There are priorities that we have to follow to do the will of God. And when we do that, we become his brothers and sisters in in that sense. Now, the reason I did this is because in verse 13, we're going to get uh, the... Parables, And I want to remind you that Jesus doesn't use parables to make things clear. He uses parables so that those to whom it is given will get it and the others will miss it. It's a dividing issue. So that those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will get it. And those who don't will be rejected. So they will say, why do you speak in parables? Because if I speak clear to them, they will turn. They will repent. And I will heal them. In other words, the Isaiah statement that Israel for a time is being blinded is part of the continuation of Jesus' ministry and that's why paul says they are in part blinded for the sake of the gentiles but they will be brought back in and all israel will be saved right so again there's a bigger picture here than what we
1: often do when we read the gospels because we tend to read them simply for ourselves yeah israel is set up Yeah, in in some
0: sense, uh, we're all set up. Um, The question is, are you set up for good or are you set up for evil? And we're set up for good, right? Um, So the issue of God is doing good to those who are the called according to his purpose, right? Uh, And if and I don't want to get Calvinistic here, but there is a struggle between that. Now, I think that the issue is God is not interfering with the evil. He's interfering with the chosen. Those of us who come to him, he's interfering with our natural enmity against him, bringing us towards him. Which means we have been favored with grace. But he hasn't turned the others against him. We're as against him as they were. He simply turned us around. And that's a different issue than that traditional Calvinistic. Some have been condemned to hell and some have been uh, chosen for heaven. Uh, We all are condemned to hell. And he's turned some of us around to demonstrate his grace. And I think we have to be careful with that.